And I wasn't just interested in like architectural detail and ornament. I was trying to figure out everything between me and the building. What what's what's all happening in this square? What's all happening in this plaza? That problem became sort of an irresistible challenge. It was like, you know, this is this is really exciting. Hello and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host Nishant Jain and this is a podcast about drawing on location. Today I'm speaking to one of my good friends in the urban sketching community who also happens to be a person that I've stalked on Instagram for many months before we ever got a chance to finally meet. I've looked at Paul Heaston's line work and I felt enormously jealous of his work. I've scrolled all the way down his Instagram feed looking for ideas that I can steal and call my own. And then finally one day I got to meet him and I realized that what you can learn from watching Paul's work is only a tiny fraction of what you can learn if you get to speak with him or to take his workshop which I did. In this conversation I talked to Paul about how art entered his world and how he came into the world of urban sketching. We talk about the importance of having a sketchbook and what urban sketching offers him that other forms of art could not. I'm glad that I know him and that I can tap into Paul Heaston's mind whenever I like. Through this conversation, I hope that I can help you to do the same. Welcome, Paul, to the Sneaky Art Podcast. Thank you very much for joining me this evening, and I'm really, really happy to be able to speak with you today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really excited about this since you told me about it, so I've been looking forward to it. So, Paul, I want to just before, uh, you know, instead of going slowly into it, I really want to dive in with a question that, that was foremost in my mind when I was following your work before I ever got to meet you in Chicago for the seminar last year. Um, and this is because i'd been following you for so long before this on the on the internet and following your work mm-hmm. and like a lot of people whose work you follow you tend to have this single dimensional image of them in your mind that this is the kind of work they do this is the way they draw so i assume these are the things that are important to them and this is how they came to draw like this but it really ignores the kind of trajectory you follow to become the kind of artist you are and it doesn't really do full justice to to how you came to be how you are so what i want to ask you is to just kind of take me through the steps of how art came into your life and how you came to finally be an urban sketcher i sure absolutely i think it's interesting that you say that because i it's something i've also once i've known gotten to know artists that I, whose work i've only seen on the web you are kind of confronted with this sort of static idea of what they do because it's really impossible to go through their life's work, even if it's out there on the web. It's just a lot of slogging through to, to kind of discover that evolution. Um, so people are surprised when I say, uh, well, I started out as a painter. Um, but even further back, I, I mean, I guess, it, to be honest, I did start out drawing. I think most, most artists uh, start out drawing. And um, my mother draws and paints. Uh, my father is a musician. Um, vocationally, my father has done lots of things. He's, um, worked as a, um, financial analyst 
and as a piano teacher, and now he sells pianos. And my mother's done a lot of things too, um, cartographer, um, briefly, and then worked uh, in an advertising agency, and then um, various administrative roles, and then decided to be a stay-at-home mother. Um, and I was really, I think, just enamored of her drawing, even more than my dad's piano playing when I was a very young child. And I think because maybe it's a little bit more intuitive, it's a little more tactile, a little less abstract, um, I could come and make a mark, you know, on paper. And for whatever reason, I took to it quickly and I started making recognizable drawings early. Um, and, um, and I remember at uh, uh, sort of an open house night at school when I was in kindergarten, and the parents all come and see what the students are doing. Um, and my kindergarten teacher told my parents that she thought I was a really exceptional artist. Um, and because while well, other kids are drawing stick figures or these sort of rudimentary uh, shapes for people and things like that, I was drawing these sort of, I don't know, almost three-dimensional, like very modeled looking figures. Um, and so, um, and I think those things sort of snowball and when you get that positive encouragement, that positive reinforcement, it builds on itself and you desire that, um, that, uh, that dynamic, that reaction, that, uh, that approval. Um, and so you start to, you know, seek out those and you start to learn more and more as you, as you go. I just think anything that makes you do it more is, uh, is helping you build your skill because it's, it's all about putting in those hours, I think, at least at first. So I drew and drew and drew all through, you know, elementary school and middle school and high school. And um, in high school, that's when I discovered I was really also into music. And that's when I, my second big interest in my life flourished. And I started learning to play instruments and studying music a little bit more seriously. Um, and, um, but I don't think that in any way diminished my passion for, for making art and drawing or anything like that. And, um, and I found all sorts of things I wanted to make art about because I also have all these other side interests that I always get into and that they become a little, um, something I've become interested in sort of, uh, almost exclusively very intensely for a little while. Like I was into whales for a, a, lot, a while in middle school and I wanted to be a cetologist who studies whales, you know, marine biologist. And so I was drawing whales all the time, you know, and then uh, I got into paleontology. I read Jurassic Park even before the movie came out. I read the book. Yeah, that's a great book. Yes, it is. And uh, and I was super excited about it. And um, and I got into dinosaurs really intensely. I read all the acknowledgments and the whatever that Michael Crichton wrote about. He read these all these other dinosaur books. So I went and got those books. And then I was like, I have to draw dinosaurs. So then I started to learn to draw dinosaurs, which, as you know, if you follow my work at all, every now and then a dinosaur will pop up. Um, and uh, so that hasn't, that interest hasn't left me in 25 years or 30, 30 years. Um, so I still draw those a lot, but you know, I get very sort of, I get consumed with these little interests like dinosaurs. And then I got really into the Beatles, right? So not only was I learning to play, I had to learn to play all the Beatles songs on guitar, but then I was drawing pictures of the Beatles all the time. Uh -huh. So that was high school for me. Um, and, uh, and then ultimately it sort of, um, you know, manifested itself in 
a, a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in painting in at UTSA, University of Texas at San Antonio. And then a few years later, I took some time off and just worked. Um, and then after that, uh, I went to graduate school at the Montana State University for um, oil painting. So I have a master's in oil painting from there. That's that's a really interesting uh, trajectory because uh, I can see how these interests all they, they play together and like when you're very young, we're so motivated by the success we get early, mm-hmm. and that joy of achievement is so addictive that it's so it's it's very easy to kind of propel yourself in one direction. Whereas when you grow up, I feel like a lot of people are very hesitant to acquire new skills when they grow up because this uh, there's a lot more memory of failing at things and you have a lot uh, you associate a lot more with lack of success than with that pure joy of achievement that you get as a child when you're when you're just creating or you're making i i used to draw all the time when i was a child so i completely understand that especially about what you said about jurassic park because when the movie came out it was like a really crazy big cultural moment in india as well everyone all over the country had just discovered paleontology so to say and yeah. there was a dinosaur themed uh, park that opened up nearby and they had these huge uh, replicas of da- various dinosaurs and all of us learned these names and maps and and i remember seeing dinosaurs also the first time in calvin and hobbes comics because occasionally yeah uh, calvin will also draw a dinosaur just like you <laughs> yeah i loved those i loved those um, those strips where he's sort of involved in that dinosaur dinosaur fantasy and um, and it, it, if you read those, and I have like the complete set now, but you can read them in chronologically. He he got passionate. Uh, Bill Watterson, the the uh, the artist, I think he got passionate about dinosaurs around the same time too. There was this sort of um, emerging excitement about dinosaurs that just before the movie Jurassic Park, and and Jurassic Park was almost sort of capitalizing on that 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 zeitgeist that. Um, um, what was happening with the, the dinosaur revolution where all these authors were coming out and saying, well, they were warm blooded and they were, you know, uh, the ancestors of birds and blah, blah, blah. And um, it's funny, uh, you should mention in India how big a cultural moment it was too, because at the same time, uh, there's a very prominent, um, I think he's passed away, but maybe not, uh, prominent Indian paleontologist, uh, Shankar Chatterjee. I'm not sure if you know, but he was a... Uh, Back at that, in those mo- in those days, there was also the big argument of whether or not they were killed by an asteroid or there was volcanism or something. Um, and he was a big advocate of the volcanism theory. And so there was some real polarizing in the paleontological community. There was some polarizing arguments back then before the ab- abundance of evidence made it clear that it was, you know, an asteroid or a meteor or something that, that came and... Um, cause their extinction. So there were all sorts of theories still kind of in the 80s. I, th- I think it's still something that I read very recently about. There's some kind of lone crusader scientist who's talking about how it wasn't a singular meteoric you know, extinction event that wiped them out, but other reasons. And I remember reading a really interesting article about that. But let's not get sidetracked by yes, the I'm history sorry. of our <laughs> planet and how it came to be and the things that happened in it. We'll just talk about our little human experience. 
I want I want to know uh, like I find it so cool because when we met in Denver you told me a little more about the kind of work you did during your MFA and around that time and I find it so fascinating that you were working on life-size canvases so these were what six feet tall and three or four feet wide yeah uh, about almost almost life-size like about three quarters life-size so they were really big and they're panel uh, so there were wooden panels, so they were heavy too, even heavier than canvas. Yeah. So what's it like to switch from that, that that kind of size and the kind of ideas with which you frame something in that kind of size, and to switch from that to to a sketchbook? What what is that transition like for you? So, it, if you're not familiar with um, master's programs and graduate programs in studio art, for the most part, it's changing now. But studio art, uh, the master's degree is the terminal degree which means some programs have three-year uh, programs so that they can um, ensure a certain level of academic rigor that, that goes into that. Because, you know, where I went to school at Montana State University, there's not a PhD in studio art. So um, so for two years, you kind of work independently and you build up a body of work. And then your third year is supposed to be your thesis year where you sort of, everything is supposed to uh, coalesce into this one big um, project or this sort of, you know, um, thematic, I don't know, everything gels. So the semester prior to my senior, my, my third year, um, I wanted to go and study abroad in Italy. Um, the reason being that a, I thought it was going to be really fun and I hadn't really ever done anything like that. I'd only ever been to England when I was about seven years old. So I thought it'd be really cool to go and, and to go where, um, as a painter and as a sort of a semi-traditional, um, you know, portrait and figurative painter, you can't go wrong going to Italy and looking at art there. Um, and so I, I spent that semester, it's a, a spring of 2007 um, in Italy. And that studio practice, which is these large paintings on these big, heavy panels, it just doesn't it's not portable. And, and yes, I could have bought the materials over there, but then getting everything back home just doesn't seem practical either, or, you know, remotely affordable. And I was already going deeply. I was taking out a lot of loans just to be in Italy, you know? Um, so, um, my, um, the, the painting professor I was going, I was accompanying, I was a graduate student and I was going to be teaching some drawing to undergraduate students as in addition to doing my own studies. And then there was a painting professor and an art history professor, full professors that were going. And um, so she was also the head of my committee, my graduate committee. And she said, why don't you bring uh, a moleskin and keep a sort of a travel journal or a sketchbook or whatever. And then you can make larger drawings or small paintings that you can roll up and take home, you know, something like that. And so I said, okay, that sounds like a good idea because the first portion of the semester, we're going to spend a lot of time traveling around anyway. We weren't going to be in one place. And, um, and so I, I started, sort of, I thought I would keep a journal in the sense that I would be drawing where I was, but I'd also be writing about my experiences. And I found that really quickly, I mean, I did about four or five pages where there was sort of half writing, half drawing. Really quickly, the writing disappeared. And instead, I was interested in just sort of drawing my environment, my surroundings. Um, and at first, it was a more narrative approach. I was really trying to give everybody a sense, you know, if anybody was going to look at this at all, of, you know, this 
the story of me going to Italy. But then I realized I, I was having more fun just sort of picking bits and pieces of things absent of context that were just interesting to me um, to draw. And, and at first it was mostly people. It was the students I was with. And then it was small environments like I'm on a bus or I'm on a, a ferry or I'm on a plane. And I'll sketch, sketch the interior of that. And then I was like, well, I mean, one thing that Italy has that Montana didn't really have was architecture. Just amazing architecture. Italy does tend to have a lot of amazing architecture. I mean, yeah, I think you can you could you could make an, a a good case that's a little bit better than Montana. So, I you know, and it I never had much, given it much thought before. I had taken art art history for a you know a long time, but um, so I could tell you sort of from a you know an academic perspective all sorts of things about architecture, right? But I never really had looked at it in the sense that I hadn't looked at it because I didn't have to draw it, you know? Um, and, and so I was like, well, this is what's what I'm seeing. And this is really interesting and compelling, but I don't know anything about it. I don't know what I'm doing. So in a sort of a naive way, I just started to approach sketching buildings and things like that and landscapes and urban landscapes and, um, and just sort of doing the best I could trying to figure out space. And this is complex space. And I wasn't just interested in like architectural detail and ornament. I was trying to figure out everything between me and the building. What, what's, what's all happening in this square? What's all happening in this plaza? Um, and I want, you know, I wanted to, um, to capture all that in a sketchbook. And that problem became sort of an irresistible challenge. It was like, you know, this is, this is really exciting. This is something I hadn't really thought I would ever be interested in. And, um, and now I'm like, okay, so how do I figure this out in pen and ink? How do I figure all this space out? Because I had been drawing really shallow and painting really shallow portraits. I mean, not shallow in the sense of superficial, but the, the figure in space. It was head on. It was just the, yeah, it was just the figure. There wasn't really an environment. Right. Um, it was this sort of, um, you know, yeah, kind of nebulous space that they inhabited. It was mostly focused on the figure and the, the portrait and nothing else. And so thinking about space was a completely sort of a new challenge. And uh, and so I filled up my sketchbook right away, my moleskin. It was one of the, the, the medium-sized ones. And then I bought more books over there and I filled them up and filled them up and fill, I just kept filling up sketchbooks. I came back to Montana and while I continued to paint in, in the studio in, you know, the pursuit of my, my thesis year, um, I just kept sketching all around Bozeman, Montana, um, you know, my roommate and my apartment. And I would go and sit outside and sketch the trees and I would go out, you know, sketch the, the apartment building from the outside. And then downtown Bozeman, I would sketch the buildings there. And I mean, it was it, it was the thing I was looking the fo forward to more than going into the studio and painting and, and, and finishing my thesis, which I did, you know. Um, but, and then the other thing that happened was that um, Linda Perman, who is my wife now, but at the time she was my girlfriend and she was still living in New York when I went to um, Italy. Um, she, I sent her some images from the sketchbooks and she said, well, these are really cool. You should put them online. Um, and she had previously told me about Flickr, but it was as a place to put my Italy photos and, you know, like my travel photos. And she said, you should put these on Flickr too. 
because they were essentially sight unseen. I was the only person and she, you know, who was seeing these sketchbooks at all. Right. Yeah. This is before Facebook. This is, I mean, we weren't really sharing photos as such online. And Flickr was also, it had a very professional uh, interface. It was supposed to be for photographers who were right. very serious about their craft, so to say. Yes. And um, and I, I liked the interface. It was because prior to Flickr, I think there was Photo Bucket and a couple of other um, photo hosting sites uh, that were mainly for if you needed a URL to plug in in a bulletin board or something like that, like here's a photo of something and, um, you know, or on a message board. And, uh, and Flickr had a cool, the, the way they organized their communities was really cool because they had groups and they had these sort of like message boards about certain subjects and you could tag photos so that they would come up in a search about a certain subject. This was before AI had figured out what was in your photo. <laughs> You had to tag it yourself, right? Um, and uh, so I was putting up these photo, these sketches that I had done around Italy of various, you know, their urban sketches, right? Various places. And Gabi Campanario um, was also on Flickr and had been, I guess he'd, I, I guess he found me through tags or something. Um, and invited me he had started a little group of people who were doing these sort of urban sketches or travel sketches or you know location sketching right and he called it sort of an urban sketchers group and i joined the group and would post in there and see what other people were posting we would comment and it was really cool and it was very international there was a people from all over the the world posting in there and there was something very um i don't know the community felt really comfortable and um, and not everybody was coming from an you know an artistic background. Some people were architects. Some people were like Gabby, who was an illustrator for uh, you know the Seattle Times. Um, some people were just complete novices when it came to art, but they were they were just doing these sketches because that's what they wanted to do. They were just visually documenting their their surroundings, and there were whole bunches of different approaches, and I liked that too. And um, it didn't feel like other art communities on, you know, the sort of fledgling art communities I'd already seen on the web. Um, and it was really fun. I came back and I continued to do sketching and Gabby decided to start a blog. And at first he didn't invite me to be a correspondent. The first sort of wave of correspondence of 10 or 15 or so correspondence. I wasn't in that group, although I knew about them and I knew them all from the Flickr group. And but he write, decided to write a feature article about me, um, in sort of the first wave of posts, um, in the fledgling blog, the beginning of the blog, the urbansketchers.com, later to be urbansketchers.org. Um, and then later, I don't know how it came up either. He asked me, or I said, How come, or I would like to be a correspondent if that's okay, or something. And he had said, Well, I thought you were way too busy, you know, doing, doing whatever to be a, a full correspondent, but sure, that would be great. Um, so I became the, uh, you know, Bozeman, Montana correspondent for the, for the blog and, you know, not really on my part, but because of Gabby's work, the blog blew up. It became very popular very quickly. And he also found so many people that he wanted to contribute to the blog. He quickly maxed out on the number of contributors that the blogger, allowed, which was like a hundred contributors. So we had a hundred correspondents from all over the world and it was really amazing. And, um, 
And then I think if, just a, a year or two later, he said, well, we should have a get-together, like a symposium, where we all can come collect in one spot and meet and talk about sketching and talk to each other and show each other what we do and have other people come and visit who aren't maybe correspondents, but um, are doing this too and very interested in it. And it wasn't huge. It was in Portland. I didn't get to go to that one. I had planned on it, but unfortunately where I was working, uh, I could not get the time off to go. Uh, so I was very disappointed. I was heartbroken actually. And, um, but uh, continued to kind of, contributing as a blogger, um, you know, correspondent. And then um, the next couple of years, it just, the timing wasn't right or I couldn't afford the trip because I wanted to go just to go and take some workshops, right? I hadn't, I hadn't thought about um, contributing to the, you know, the symposium in any way. I just wanted to be there and meet all the people. And Linda, Linda, yet another smart bit of advice she gave me after the Flickr thing was, well, why don't you submit a proposal? You're pretty good too. <laughs> she said, why don't you submit a workshop proposal? And then you don't have to worry about the not can't afford it part. Um, and so I did, and we ended up going to um, Brazil to the Parachi um, Symposium, which I'm not sure which number that was, the fifth symposium uh, or the fourth and um, in 2014. So um, yeah. And then it's sort of you know and it's gone on from there that that was that was a very fascinating journey and one part which made me really curious is how when you described going to italy and of course you and you didn't have any formal understanding of architecture or urban landscapes so to say but you started putting that down now there's you know when people think that someone with an mfa is doing urban sketching they assume a lot of advantages you have when it comes to purely drawing because there's a lot of ways in which you understand your tools in a much more in a much more formal and a much more comprehensive way than a lot of self-taught people and ideas like ideas about composition etc but it sounds like the kind of things that you were working on large canvases it didn't directly translate to the things you wanted to make in a sketchbook so i'm curious to know what are the things that like it's obvious to think of the things that that came easily to you when you started working out of a sketchbook. But what was the the special challenges that you faced when you first started urban sketching without even knowing the term urban sketching? Um, you know, I mean, I was sort of doing it without even in a vacuum, almost without even being aware of the, the work other people had done. I'd seen sort of reportage sketching and travel sketches. I think I'd seen Sargent's watercolors, which I wouldn't. Still, to this day, I wouldn't put myself anywhere near those. I can't compare myself to those kinds of pieces. But um, I, for whatever reason, like, yeah, you're you're right in, your, in, in the sense that I didn't, you know, there wasn't a direct relationship between my, the MFA work that I was doing. Um, so, and, and urban sketching. So, um, but I did have an advantage. I, you know, I have been doing observational drawing and, you know, in the sense of still lifes, figure drawing and those kinds of things for, you know, however long I've been doing it years and years. Um, so I had a, a skill set when it came to that. It wasn't sort of a complete uh, blank slate coming in. Um, and, but I had to, to learn some things about drawing architecture and pen and ink and straight lines and perspective 
um, that I just had never had a chance to practice, never had an opportunity to really uh, to dive into or a desire to. So let's let's pick one of these. Let's say something like uh, composition and incorporating perspective into composition, because I feel like that's a specific challenge that comes into someone who's doing a lot of portraiture and then is looking at uh, an urban landscape, which has something very close to you. There's a middle foreground, middle ground and a distinct horizon based background. So how did you go about uh, familiarizing familiarizing yourself with perspective and educating yourself on the subject? Well, I had a little bit of a leg up in the sense that I had, when I went to graduate school, they immediately had me teaching a foundations level drawing class, like a two, two-dimensional design class, and then drawing. And for both of those, I had to teach perspective, which meant I had to reacquaint myself with those concepts. But I wasn't, I gave it, you know, I was learning it a week ahead of the students, basically. Um uh, so, and I was 25 and my students were 19. So, I mean, these days I don't feel like they're, I feel like they're the same age as I am, but, you know, so I, I shudder to think of how much trust they placed in my instruction back then, considering how little I really knew, but I guess I had a very confident delivery of those concepts. So I was, um, so I wasn't completely unaware of perspective. I had to learn that the basics of one, two, and three-point perspective. But we were doing just a limited unit on perspective in those classes because there were so many other things to cover. Um, and when you talk about perspective, the perspective challenges in terms of composition and making something strong compositionally and the perspective work. Composition is still the thing I think I have the most trouble talking about in terms in formal terms because to me, it's still such an intuitive thing. It's taken me a long time to figure out how th to make things work compositionally, but I still have trouble saying why they work compositionally. I'm, I kind of have the knowledge now, but not necessarily the, uh, the technical uh, language to speak about it. Um, I know some of the, the formal rules and concepts, you know, there's, um, you know, all sorts of rules about balance and um, light and dark and things like that. Um, that make certain compositional choices work. And I just sort of approach that intuitively, though. I'm not somebody who sets out saying, what is going to make this the most interesting thing? And I feel like I came about it, um, I don't know how to say this, it's sort of a, a lucky thing that I, I, I don't really make choices other than now when I'm, a lot of my drawing is about my entire field of view. I don't make a lot of compositional choices other than what direction to turn my head. Now I do walk, I walk around for a long time and try to figure out where I want to sit to draw, where I, you know, what I want to look at. But then after that, after that, everything pretty much falls into place because I, I consider sort of observational drawing at that point. It's an open book test. Everything is in front of you. Every, all the information you need is in front of you. And then you go and you draw it. Now that's a lot easier to say than it is to do. Um, but um, but the perspective part of it was, I think, once I started playing with that, once I started feeling those things out, uh, and when it really happened, it was coming back to Bozeman, and I was doing this little, I gave myself a little assignment. I said, I'm going to draw, I had seen Ed Ruscha's book, Every Building on the Sunset Strip, which is an art book he made um, when he was living in, you know, he was living in California, and he took photos of every building on the Sunset Strip in Hollywood. Uh, from one side of the street, he would just take a photo directly looking directly across at the buildings, then move down the street a few, you know, like 20 or 30 feet and take another photo. 
then take another photo, right? And he collage them all together. Then he crossed the street and do the other side of the street. So looking at the other direction that he had just been standing on. And he made an accordion style book with those, with those streetscapes printed, you know, on the book. And I'd seen that at the LA County Museum. Um, and I, or maybe I was aware of it and hadn't seen it in person yet, but I knew about the project. And then I said, okay, I'll give myself an assignment. I'm going to draw, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to, as a drawing of Bozeman. And I said, cause, cause Bozeman's a small enough town that the downtown is about five blocks on one street. And then there's really nothing else. So I would, I would have a pretty complete, um, set of drawings, you know, from just that one slice of main street. Um, and I found a good sort of, a panoramic style sketchbook that would work perfectly for that. So I did that, but I was having problems. So the first thing I used to do, I used to draw the buildings um, with the, the tops and the bottoms of the buildings horizontal because I knew ge the geometrically that's what they are, right? Mathematically, they're, they're straight lines, you know? Yeah, so so we're coming to this interesting part that I uh, definitely want you to uh, wanted to probe you about also <laughs> is the warped perspective that you use. Yeah. But before we get into it, I want to ask you to just take let's just take one step back because I have uh, just when when you go out to draw now, I, I'm sure a lot of people have this question about how you do this. So when you go out to draw, can you can, let's let's go over the basic conditions that you kind of fulfill when Paul Heaston is going out to draw, you get in your car, you have a basic set of art supplies that you carry. What's, what's your, what's your primary toolkit? So I have a little sling bag that's kind of, um, smaller than a messenger bag, um, that Linda got me. And I, and it's big enough for the eight and a half by five and a half inch standard sort of sketchbooks, um, and not much bigger. Um, and so I'll, I'll carry a, a few, I like Stillman and Burns sketchbooks these days. Um, and, uh, in the past it was almost always moleskin, but maybe the last six, seven years or so, it's been mostly Stillman and Burn with a couple of Hanamula and, um, uh, I've just been using some Etcher sketchbooks too, which I, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying. So, um, and then I carry in the past, it used to be mole, um, not moleskin, it used to be Micron pens, um, mostly Micron or Statler pigment liner pens. And then it took me a while to get into fountain pens. I kept buying them and trying them and not having a good time. Um, and then maybe around 2015, 2016, I started to really uh, get more comfortable trying them. I had a, a Lamy Safari um, and a, you know, a Pilot Metropolitan and some other affordable ones. Um, and then it really took off when um, Alvin Wong from Urban Sketchers Hong Kong, he gave me a Fude Nib pen. And I really fell in love with that. That's just a game changer. Yeah. Yeah. I think everybody who tries one agrees. It just, it's a, it's a, you know, it's one of those revelatory moments in the life of an urban sketcher. I, I completely agree. It's really interesting to me how fountain pens are such a integral part of urban sketching. And it's, it's simultaneously it, because urban sketching is almost like, so I think of it like a modern uh, phenomenon although it's it's a very it's a very basic art form that's always been practiced but i think the way it's popular now is a very modern thing because a lot of people feel jaded from photographs and overexposure to digital art and very perfect art so there's this appreciation for something that's very clearly handmade 
on the spot on location and representing the mood and the feelings of that time and place so there's something very modern about that the fact that mm-hmm. we like it but we use this very classical old school instrument in which you turn the screw to fill it ink into it and then you go out and you draw with it and if you run out of ink there's nothing you can do yeah and you can drip a big blob of ink on your yeah more than once so you just gotta say well that area is black <laughs> and just <laughs> yeah. start filling it in um but yeah, and 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 especially that the the Fude Nib fountain pens because they even they don't even give you the kind of precision that like a micron pen or a rollerball or something will do, and so it's not it, very handmade and very. Uh, and same thing with watercolor, which is the most sort of common uh, paint media in urban sketching. It's those sort of uh, things that the media wants to do independently of your own. <laughs> you know, of your own goals that make it so much so interesting. Right. And, uh, and, and, and especially for somebody like me, who's um, I'm kind of, you know, not kind of, but I'm definitely a, a tighter, um, more sort of a precise kind of sketcher. Um, I think that wouldn't be, you know, uh, a surprise to most people, but even with fountain pens, I'm definitely like, <laughs> um, you know, I can tone it. I could take it down a notch if I need to. I would actually, I would actually say, I find fountain pens easier to be precise with than a micron. Like I find something about uh, the 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 kind of friction that the fountain pen nib, even the Fude pen nib that it has on the paper, is much is is a much more effective feedback system, like tactile feedback for me than a micron or, you know, a lot of people work with ball pens, and I, for the life of me, I I think I'd be drawing, like. Like I was a six-year-old if I was working with a fountain pen, with a yeah, ball pen, because right. it's I just don't get that feedback from it. Yeah, and that's what I enjoy the most about fountain pens, personally. I think, yeah, I agree with you that you can do that, and I get very precise lines, especially since I love to turn the nib over too. Um, but I think it may be that for me, it's the most versatile, and that it gives me everything from this sort of gestural um, kind of crazy line, if you want it to, to these sort of precise lines, and no other pen gives you all of those sort of options with you know and you can really um because somebody like don Lowe can take a food nib and make this sort of almost a painting of a sketch it's beautiful and just um you know with these super, super fluid lines and i'm not as fluid um but i can i feel like i can work a little bit quicker a little more gesturally with a, those food nib pens um than a fountain pen or than a micron or a fine liner pen so you've got you've got these tools, and now you're going out to draw. How how much time do you typically set yourself for an urban sketch? So if I've got like a little pocket sketchbook, I don't need too much time. You know, half an hour is a good amount of time to anywhere from half an hour to ninety minutes, and that'd be the max amount of time I'd spend on the, a pocket sketchbook. And then the larger, you know, standard size or larger, like these etcher books I've been working in lately, um, two or three hours. Um, now that's if I've set aside like a half day or a day to go out and sketch and I've got a goal and I've even got like an idea where I want to be. Um, so they're not as much tools for spontaneous sketching, like, you know, wherever I am located kind of sketching. Um, so I, I find myself sometimes, especially before the pandemic set in and I was, I would drop my wife off at work and I was also dropping my, my older daughter off at school. Um, and my youngest daughter, who was only one when the pandemic started, would fall asleep in the car after all these drop-offs, so her, her morning nap, so by about 9, 
she was falling asleep in the car and I didn't want to take her home, disturb her and risk her not getting her nap by taking her out of the car and putting her up in her crib. So I would pull over somewhere um, and look for something interesting on the street to draw. And I was, I always had my pocket sketchbook in my back pocket, you know, and then I only needed a half an hour to an hour. Um, and then, you know, she'd start to stir and I would sit and I would move on. And so I've done a lot of my like little street, my parked car sketches from that. Yeah. Yeah. Your parked, your parked car sketches are almost like something unique that you do. Like I, I identify a lot of your work as this is something he drew out of a car for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's very, it's very funny to know how naturally it came about because of circumstances and it wasn't even a particularly planned activity. It started actually with my first daughter with Juniper when she was that age too, because I was dropping my wife off at work five years ago. And, um, and so, <laughs> um, but then it, you know, in between when she was too old to be taking naps, you know, in her car seat, um, I stopped doing it for a little while. Um, but then the other thing I do is I'll go out on a Saturday or a Sunday, you know, and uh, sort of my day off and my uh, chance to go out and do one sketch. Um, and I'll go out and walk around, look for a place to sketch. Lately, um, if you follow me on social media, you know I've been going to junkyards a lot. Um, and that's one thing I really enjoy is uh, going and um, wandering around looking for some kind of rusted hunk of <laughs> metal. Um, I do like drawing cars and, and I used to draw, I used to go to transportation museums and things around town and, or just parked cars that are running and clean and normal looking. Um, but a few years ago, I have a friend who, um, uh, who wrote for auto weekly, um, and he lives here in Denver and he took me, he's a, he takes photographs around, um, junkyards and he decided he would take me and say, why don't you do a sketch and then I'll take pictures of you sketching. And, um, I, the first time I'd ever been to one of those places, I think I'd always, because I'm not a car person, I had always probably been too intimidated to ever want to check one of those one of those places out. And also, I've never, never done any work on a car, so I'd never had an excuse. Um, and uh, so I went, and I really enjoyed it, walking around, looking at these sort of dilapidated, kind of half-deconstructed things, sort of rusting in these piles. And, uh, and, you know, you don't have to be, I think, especially if you're somebody who's intimidated by drawing cars in the first place, these things are all bent and rusted and dented and the wheels are gone or they're half deflated or they're at odd angles. So if you're worried about getting all the lines right and the curves right and the perspective right, you have much less to worry about in a junkyard. <laughs> which Because is... the junkyard takes care of a lot of what would be called your mistakes. Exactly. So nobody's going to be able to say, hey, wait a minute, that's a little off. You're like, oh, I, I must have got, it must have been in a horrible wreck. You know? That is a nice trick for people to know in case you want to draw yeah. cars and you're not confident. Draw beat up cars. That's right. But I also love just the environment. It's quiet. You're outdoors. And it's very... I don't know. It's meditative for me in a, in a way that maybe sketching out on the street w isn't. Um, so it's an interesting environment to sketch. I, I recommend it if you can find a place that's amenable. I've always asked permission. Um, it's not something because they could, the, some of the people who run those places can be a little rough around the edges. Um, so it's not something you want to uh, ask forgiveness for because if, you know, they want to make money, they want you to you know, to go out and, and find a car part and pay for it. That's what they're interested in. So 
Uh, if you say, no, I just want to sketch your junk, some of them will give you a strange look. But uh, if you show them your sketchbook um, and you're friendly, upfront, and you know, honest about your intentions, every, I've, I've found that everybody has been pretty friendly. So, so uh, let's come to the really cool novel part of about your work finally to the warped perspective mm -hmm. and uh so you you were you began describing it and from what i gathered it was about how you didn't want to draw like an infinitely long horizon completely flat so maybe you could explain that further sure without going into crazy detail about this this drawing in bozeman i was doing but basically i it wasn't working for me to keep these street walls, this, this wall of buildings, um, completely horizontal, you know, where it met the ground and then the roof lines, because I would be looking down the street to my right and left. And I was saying, well, like they're tapering, they're going off, they're receding toward a vanishing point. I knew enough about perspective to understand that, you know, and, and, uh, and they start, you know, that, that receding well before the, they're cut off by the side of the page. So, Am I being honest about what I'm seeing if I don't draw that? And how do I draw that? And I remember thinking about, well, I've seen panoramic photos. And, you know, at this point, I think Google Street View was already around too. And uh, so it's not such a, you know, um, uh, an alien idea that you could curve the drawing, you curve the space in the drawing. But I hadn't really given it much thought because I think when I'd seen stuff, stuff like fisheye photos in the past, I'd always heard that is attributed to distortion of a lens. Like when you make a lens a certain way, it distorts space. Well, what's not? That's not that's not a a very precise way of discussing what's happening with the lens. What's really happening is it's showing more space. And when you show all that space, um, it has to curve because to to include all of this space, this sort of global or fisheye perspective, um, you're everything's going to start to curve as it gets to further and further from the center of your field of vision, the center of your line of, line of sight. And I mean, this is stuff I sort of found out later as I studied after the fact, after I was sort of drawing visual conclusions about space. Um, so I was like, well, let me try this. And I, so I started drawing these sort of this arc shape on my buildings, um, this sort of curved roof line and then curved line where the buildings meet the curb, you know, where they meet the, the sidewalk and I was like, this makes more sense to me. It feels better in terms of describing this space because I have this long panoramic sketchbook and you know, it just made more sense. And I kept going and I kept going and I would get, got more and more comfortable with that. And then I started, I was like, well, let me apply this to an interior space. I'll go and draw in a, in a coffee shop and see what I can do with this idea of curving the space. And then I was like, well, there's all these verticals too, these strong verticals. And if you think about it, they, they converge up at the top of my field of view and down at the bottom of my field of view. And so now I have to curve my vertical lines too. And I was, they were starting to become these sort of fisheye drawings. And then, and then the natural part of that was that, well, if I'm including everything I can see in my field of view, that includes my hands and my sketchbook. And maybe even my 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 feet, if I have my legs crossed, or my chair, or my you know the table I'm sitting at. So I was like, I mean, I'm looking at my sketchbook when I'm drawing, so it must be in the drawing. It has to be there because uh, I know I can see it because I'm looking at it. Um, so that's how that came to be as part of my the sort of a signature thing that I do is including my hands and sketchbook in the drawing. 
but I, it wasn't so much like I needed to establish a gimmick. That wasn't me thinking, oh, this would be a great way to brand myself. So, so much as it was sort of the logical extension of what I was thinking, thinking about in terms of perspective. And I was like, well, I've got to put that in there. It just makes sense. Um, and so, but it did become this sort of a, a, um, an identifying characteristic of my sketches over the years. I would have to say it's like your signature signature look. How, how do you feel about that fact? Do you think it's your signature look? You know, I mean, I've counted up. I know how many sketches I've done in the past, oh, um, 13 years now. And it's about like five or 6,000. Um, but I, I've counted how many of them are that kind of sketch. And that's only a couple of hundred. So while everybody associates that with me, it's by by far not the majority of the sketching I've done. But it is so distinctive that I think it's the most sort of memorable thing people, when they encounter it, they're like, oh, I remember he does the crazy drawings with the... You're in, you're in very good company because this conversation we're having, it, it keeps uh, reminding me of some recent studying I've been doing. So I've been reading this book about M.C. Escher, the really famous Dutch graphic artist. Mm -hmm. And so he got sort of embroiled so to say, in mathematics uh, without intending to because of very similar things. Like he wanted to show everything, but he wanted to show it in a finite amount of space because he was making prints. He was a printmaker. And so he also started to curve reality in order to be able to show it and to then still mathematically, according to the way perspective would work, to show it uh, tapering away to various horizons. And I think... This is not even the work he he's most famous for. So the work that he is uh, popular throughout the world for is this optical illusion work, which is a very small part of his mm -hmm. otherwise large, incredibly big repertoire. But he's become super famous for this this little thing, which again, which he was doing just because it was the logical extension of his ideas, taking it to fruition. Well, and I think that is a sort of microcosmically a good descriptor of the way artists develop. Um, I think if you're, if you have a too much of a too strong a degree of intentionality about your career trajectory or the things you want to do, uh, I think it'll all blow up, um, you know, or it, it, you can be, you could, you could wind up disappointed, but if you just sort of follow uh, these sort of natural, um, things, these natural things that you start to get curious about when you, when you solve one problem, another problem pops up and you become curious about that. And you just sort of organically find your way through these, you know, these things that you're interested in. Um, I think that's, you know, pretty typical of, you know, artistic development, or at least um, one that isn't, you're not trying to shape too intentionally. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and I, and I'm somebody who will simply, I'll just pursue a tangent, um, until I've kind of wrapped my mind around this, you know, to my, you know, and I, I maybe haven't satisfactorily found, you know, the end of this particular line of, of, you know, inquiry to, to put a highfalutin term in there. But I mean, like, uh, I, it's just something that I naturally was interested in, like, you know, like MC Escher. And it's funny you say Escher too, because. I had been a big fan of Escher as a kid, always. Um, you know, I think my grandpa had an Escher book and I, I had an Escher t-shirt. I had the tessellations where the birds become the fish. And, uh, and, I, and then I had my own books, you know, later on. And I loved Escher. And I sort of, I'm, 
must have absorbed subconsciously some of the perspective uh, play that he was engaged in, even if I hadn't really had a handle on what he was doing then. Um, and then it's, it's funny, as I, you know, was on social media more and more and seeing other people doing these things, I'd also realize, well, this is nothing that nobody that other people haven't already explored, not just Escher, but I, I was discovering all sorts of artists who were doing these amazing perspective um, play, you know, experiments with drawing and things like that. Gerard Michel uh, is a Belgian urban sketcher had been doing it in the seventies, you know, uh, Rackstraw Downs, a painter. Um, and then when I got an Instagram, it's funny, I hadn't even heard um, of, of this artist until in- Instagram, but um, uh, Kim Jong-gi is a Korean Kim, artist. Yeah, he's 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 one of my my heroes. <laughs> he's the reason why I decided I was going to draw with a pen and without an eraser, just just make it happen like him. I didn't know a thing about him. And then I got an um, Instagram and people were like, oh, you're copying <laughs> Kim Jong-gi's work. And I was like, who? <laughs> and we had been doing those similar, those um, point of view drawings, yeah, you know, yeah. um, unaware of the, the other's work. Uh, I I'm still doubt that he's aware of my work, but, you know. So, and it was a little bit of a, like, I was taken aback, like, well, no, I would never, you know, I wasn't. But then I was like, well, he's really good. But then other people were like, um, recognized that I had been doing it, you know, since 2007. And also that, you know, our styles aren't particularly similar. Superficially, yeah, I think. But he does this beautiful brush pen work and real stark and contrasty and coming from a comic book background. um, Just amazing stuff. Amazing. And his understanding perspective I mean, isn't even maybe the strongest thing about him. He, he also his like his ability to recall um, detail, very specific stuff. Like he could draw an army vehicle from memory, or he can draw, exactly right, uh, yeah. just unbelievable. Or or these kind of nano, like these kind of uh, human robotic suits and exoskeletons, and I think just the way he can he can compose a page, which seems like chaotic, but all the parts just even if you just glance at it, it makes sense to you yeah unbelievable stuff i i, I could watch the videos all day of when he, of him working um i highly recommend doing that to people <laughs> who don't know his work because i've learned a lot from just jealously watching kim <laughs> jong ji's videos and hoping one day i'm going to draw like that and if yeah yeah there are people who inspire you to pick up a pen and then there are people who inspire you to put it down i think he's in the latter the latter category he's like oh I think I, I don't think I need to do a drawing today. What's the point? Yeah. What's the point? <laughs> so uh, I, I th- there are a lot of people who might think that way when they look at your own work. So I want to ask you, uh, like, you, you must get a lot of questions from people all the time on Instagram and on Facebook, even in workshops that you do in person, you probably get a lot of get a lot of interesting and sometimes a lot of very typical questions. So what's like a popular question that you feel like maybe you don't always get uh, the best opportunity to answer. Maybe you don't get to take your time to answer that you would like to speak about now. Well, I mean, I can, I can say, I know the ones I get most commonly are what are the materials I use, which we've covered and how, how long did this take, which we've also sort of covered. Um, And three hours is pretty much my limit before, you know, my extremities go numb. Um, 
I mean, and then I get a lot of questions that do require some sort of in-depth, um, you know, they're not as sort of easily answered in a, in a little tiny blurb. Um, and some of those are, you know, like, how do you do this when it comes to this sort of um, this perspective drawing that I do, um, which is not something I can, I've ever, I mean, I'm not even, I'm not even tempted to try and answer those questions anymore. There's no way. I mean, I, I, I point them to my classes or something. Um, but um, so that's a good question. I'm trying to think what's a question that I wish I could, uh, I could answer with if given more time. Let me try to break down this perspective uh, drawing challenge and maybe you can tell me that and like uh, through these shorter questions that I'll try to formulate. So let's say you, you're drawing without any kind of pencil work, right? You're drawing straight with ink on paper for the most part. It's about 50-50. Um, smaller sketches or quicker sketches, I don't, I don't bother with pencil. And for the larger sketches that I know I'm going to be there for a, a few hours and I, and there, the perspective is a little more complicated or elaborate, I will do a brief and I'm, I mean, brief, never more than maybe 10 minutes of just a sort of skeletal pencil work, no detail, just trying to lay out the basic proportions, the basic blocks of shape um, in the sketch. And then I, I go on almost always, I end up changing the, the location of everything by the time I get to the pen, but um, it's still a little bit of a safety net on those bigger drawings. I find that sometimes when I do the bigger drawings without a pencil, it doesn't matter. Um, I couldn't, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you the difference after the fact. So it's, it's a little bit like Dumbo and the magic feather. I don't really need it, the pencil, but it, it some, sometimes it's still a security blanket for me, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I feel like sometimes the, the beauty comes out, like even if it's an especially challenging perspective scene, even kind of getting it wrong can, you know, like there's this thing I was thinking about. It's like the difference between accuracy and precision. Mm -hmm. So accuracy, precision is how exactly correct, uh, accuracy is how exactly correct you are. So if you're drawing a perspective, how how close to reality is it? But precision is how consistent you are. So can you reproduce that same result again and again? Or even you could have low accuracy, so you're not exactly correct, but you make the same kind of mistake again and again, which is, I think, what... So high precision and low accuracy, I think, is the formula for de developing a style. Mm -hmm. Like if you make those same kind of exaggerations or those same kind of mistakes. And I feel like in some sketches, the accuracy of your perspective is less important or even though that perspective might exist, but the style of that sketch is the real, uh, the real appeal. And even a bit of chaos in the perspective accuracy is irrelevant. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with you that style is sort of those consistent idiosyncrasies that crop up in the work, um, you know, no matter how hard you try to eliminate them. Yeah. And I like how when you were explaining, you know, the, the way we move forward, the way like you've been you've been doing urban sketching for 12, 13 years now. So the thing that keeps it exciting is to have those, not not have a predetermined goal of how you want to draw. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people, when I speak to people who want to learn how to draw better, you get a lot of what I think are disappointing questions because people ask you how to draw like them. Mm -hmm. And I want to shake them and I want to say that there's no point trying to draw like me. You should be trying to draw like you. And... 
it's because there's this idea that the way to get better is this objective paths that you're supposed to follow and this is how well you do in certain things and these are the points you get for it and then you become a good artist and i find it's really important to teach people to kind of accept their mistakes and to almost be brash about the mistakes they make and to make that into art because really that's that's what it is right especially in urban sketching so much of it is just what comes out of you right no absolutely it's um it is it's a it's a fine line between being so discouraged that you you know you cease um being interested in the problem right or the challenge of you know sketching and overcoming problems to the point where the work becomes sort of antiseptic and rote and not um visually compelling right so so you have to almost be not aware of that you have to have a little bit of a blind spot and and a little bit of a uh a confidence uh enough confidence that you're um you're not discouraged by those idiosyncrasies and maybe you're not even aware of them you don't see them um and that allows you to continue to make the, the work while while not eliminating the thing that makes the work so interesting right um and almost and, helps to not be too knowledgeable about what you're doing right like there's a reason like the beatles i think you know i hate to always use the beatles because i it's but it's it is one of those cases where like they were wildly successful they made some really interesting music and they were in a sense sort of naive artists they don't have any musical training or academic background not saying that if you do have those things you couldn't make interesting music like queen they went to music school and they really made great stuff too with that knowledge. Um, so, but it, it's there, it can be a useful thing. Uh, I mean, you know, they say a little bit of knowledge can be a dangerous thing. Right. And, 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 and in the sense that it can stifle uh, some of the, um, the willingness to let those sort of happy accidents happen. And, um, and I, for that reason, I was always reluctant to really dive into perspective from um, a mathematical, um, you know, point of view. I was, I was wor worried that having a little bit too much knowledge would change the way I approached seeing things. And I liked my sort of intuitive coming from the outside kind of approach. Um, and I didn't want to. I mean, and maybe it's a silly thing to be to be worried about, but um, I didn't want to be too informed by this sort of mathematical understanding of it. I know a lot about it, though, probably more than the layperson in terms of, you know, even the mathematical underpinnings of perspective. Just over the years, I've absorbed so much and I've had to teach it. And, and in teaching it, I've had to teach, well, here's how people uh, think it works and here's how I think it works, you know in order to be able to teach the way I do it, I had to learn how other people think about it. Um, so, but on the other hand, it's sort of, um, uh, I, I still don't, I don't bring a protractor or a ruler with me and, and I don't, you know, and I, I still do things that, um, subvert expectations, um, you know, in terms of my drawing and, um, and hopefully if I can continue to do that and I don't get too complacent then i'll still find interesting things to 
you know, to explore in, in, in sketching? Yeah, it's this uh, balance between like you want to you want to enjoy what you're doing and but you're all you also want to be on the edge because the curiosity to try something new. It's it's this like uh, recently I read about the passing of this very famous speaker called uh, Sir Ken Robinson. I think that was his mm-hmm. name. Yeah. But he did a TED talk that was really influential. And it's I think it's so it's the most watched TED talk in history and he talks about creativity and how we kill it as we grow older and coming back to how we started this uh, with our uh, with your inspirations from childhood it's he says that creativity is something that everybody is born with but over time we learn to ignore it and we give it less and less credit and we become almost afraid of it so it we leave it we lessen our creativity over time and so it's very important for us to it's something that's very important for us to not lose. And I guess when you're when you're so many years into what you're doing, it's very interesting how you keep yourself motivated and how you find the uh, the the interesting challenge that keeps you drawing nearly every day. It's yeah, and I'll tell you when I talk about intentionality, I think that's a part of it. It sort of seems counterintuitive, but in order to remain creative, for me, treating it like work rather than like creative time seems to be the best way to do it because making equals making those discoveries, those creative leaps and finding those creative avenues to explore. But by not making, but by thinking about what's the best thing to do, what's the most creative thing I can do. You're sort of already, you've, you've lost the race before it's even started. You, you know, you're out of, out of the gate. You're sort of handicapped in a sense um, because being too deliberate is maybe sort of the death knell of that creative impulse. And you can't sit and think and think and think and think and make an interesting drawing. Um, in my experience, you know, it, you've just got to make drawings and you might make a bunch of bad ones before you get to the good one, but it'll come if you keep making, you can't make a good one. If you don't make any drawings, it's just not possible. And there's, you know, there has to be a point at which you understand that like the work which seems like the sort of driest, most, um, you know, depressing part of making art is like, you know, just treating it like it's a job. Um, you realize, no, that's where it is. It's like the um, the, the Chuck Close quote. I, I, you, you and I may have talked about this before, but inspiration is for amateurs. The rest of us just get up and get go to work. And I think it had been, I think I heard it third hand when I first heard it, but it was like, everybody has a thousand shitty paintings in them. The quicker you get rid of the thousand, the quicker you can get to the good ones. And then I always have the addendum that I've sort of noticed is like, well, they're not in a row. That's the good news. You don't have to make a thousand bad ones before the good one, the first good one. And what it's just that the ratio of bad to good is heavily favors the bad at first. And then, and then towards the end of your life, if you're lucky and you worked hard, the ratio of bad to good heavily favors the good, but they're still bad. Like you can't get rid of those either. Um, but you you have to, you can basically shift that, you know, that ratio over to more good than bad, more successful than unsuccessful is maybe a better way to put it um, over time. And that, but the only way to do it is to make enough that you, <laughs> that you shift the ratio, you know, cause you're starting out. Yeah. Your, your record is something like 50 and three, you know, your record is terrible. So the 50 are always going to be there on your, you know, 
in your record weighing you down right mentally as well but but if you make 75 more and then it's 50 50 all of a sudden it's starting to even out and then you know you make 150 more and three quarters of those are successful you know so it's um but you got to make 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 it's um there's no other way around it um and uh it sounds such like such boring advice that i, I sometimes hesitate to give it because the shortcut is the long way you know, that's another kind of cliche. And it does, it always sounds like a cliche. And that's, and so people tend to ignore cliches. It's just boring advice, but also very, very effective. It's, it's the easiest way to definitely get it done. But, you know, you learn as much when you're not in the mood or you're making a terrible painting as you do when you are in the mood and you're making something worthwhile. And sometimes you find yourself really high on a particular sketch in the moment. And then you go back and look at it later and you're like, what was I so excited about? I don't know. It wasn't, this wasn't working the way I thought it was, you know. Do you have a lot of people who, like, do you also post the sketches that you're personally not as happy with? Or do you only post the ones that you really, really love? Every now and then. But I find, I mean, it's time consuming to even post the sketches I like. Um, and so I, I have a, a long record of sketches on the web. So I figure people can just go back if they really want to dig and find my old work. And, and I, I sometimes post my old work. Um, I posted some 12 year old drawings today on Instagram and, um, and people are interested in those and people like to see that development. They like to see uh, how approaches change. And I, I'll be, I'll be the first to say that I didn't know as much about urban sketching then, but I did know a lot about drawing and things like that 10, 15 years ago. So I wasn't entirely uh, a novice at that point, you know, but I can go back and show my, you know, really young work and every now and then, and you can see that development. Um, but even in the past four or five years, I mean, the things that I start to, you know, I'm interested in, in terms of pen work. And uh, now I use ink wash more than I do cross hatching or, or this and that. Um, you know, I mean, there's there's all sorts of little markers I can look at, um, even in recent work, and say, okay, well, I do this differently now, um, and uh, you know, and sometimes I look at an old piece and go, wow, I I don't feel like I can do that anymore. That's actually pretty good, and I don't see that way anymore. I wonder where I was and what I was thinking. How how do I get back to that frame of mind? Do you have these sketches sometimes where you feel like as if they're not going well, and they're not going well, and just you find that you rescue them towards the last one third of the drawing time you have? Maybe all, almost all of them. I mean, there's like a, you know, they're marathons for me. There's three hours full of, you know, hand wringing and sweating and, you know, anxiety. Because there's nothing, no worse feeling for me than three hours that I felt I wasted. And um, I don't, you know, I mean philosophically i can say okay i didn't really waste that time it's all useful time um but you know you don't get your little social media cookie sometimes and that's you know you know it, i i can't deny that the social media response of the, the reinforcement the positive you know reinforcement of social media plays a role in how i feel about my work you know because it's always cur you're always curious like this is when i thought was really working great and People don't seem that interested. And this one, I was like a little throwaway thing that I did and people are wild about it. And I always want to know about that, but I, you know, but I'm also, I love it when I love something and then everybody else seems to love it too. And I feel like there was this 
I'm connecting with those people who are, you know, fans and, um, and that's always fun. And I can't say that's not a part of it, but I can, at least I know I would still be doing this without the social media because I started it without the social media and it was just as compelling for me then. I don't know, maybe, maybe after 13 years, maybe it wouldn't have been, I don't know. So you've got a lot of work that you put on. Firstly, you put a lot of work on Instagram. So the, a lot of your viewers and fans are looking at your work as it comes out. But over the last year, you've also put together, is it is it one or is it two books now? It's two books, right? Yes. Uh, well, actually three. It's th- um, So three, two with blurb. One is sort of a collection of odds and ends and sketches the last three or four years. That was the first book that came that I put out with the blurb in the fall of 2019. Um, and that's called Sketches Volume 1. So when you're putting this work together and you you put them together as books and now people are buying them as books and they're consuming your work in you know multiple pages in their hands, mm-hmm. do you get any other interesting feedback from them? Are there, other, are there some new insights that people are sharing with you about what they like? It's been mostly positive and I haven't gotten a, not a lot of specific feedback other than maybe technical things. Um, in terms of how they're printed or the binding, et cetera. Um, but some people have said, um, you know, it's interesting to see it, I think, at the scale that I was doing it, because um, especially in the, that first book and in the, the last one, um, well, the first one is most of the sketches are one-to-one. So they're the scale that I drew them at. And... Um, and, it, and it's the same as when you come and you meet a sketcher for the first time, you look at their sketchbook in your hands. It's a really cool thing because now you have a much more, uh, a much greater appreciation of what it is they're doing when they're sitting down to sketch. You can see, you know, you can feel that there's that tactile uh, thing happening. And like people, when I first was, I used to do everything in my pocket moleskin and almost never worked in the midsize ones. And so I went to, um, Brazil for the, the first Urban Sketcher Symposium that I went to and people saw my sketchbook. They're like, I had no idea these were so tiny. And that was also where I got the, uh, I, I understood that it's better to take, I used to scan everything and post it, you know, and I eliminated everything but the artwork. Cause that's all I cared about was the artwork. I don't care about the board, the borders, the edges of the book or the environment or whatever. And then I learned, I learned, well, what people want to see is that book in, in situation, you know, in the, in the context of the environment you made it. And so then I started taking pictures of me holding up the sketchbook in front of the object and people, people responded in a different way. And, and it made sense too, too. I, I, to me, I was, it clicked. I was like, okay, you know, now people have a better relationship or better understanding of what I was doing when I sketched and the same is hap- is true of when they buy the sketchbook. That's a reproduction of the, you know, the sketches is they can feel, you know, like it's, it feels like having my book in their hand and they're, oh, okay, this is how big, this is how long of a mark that is. Right. You know, because everything is this little on a little tiny screen or on a big laptop screen or something like that. And then you can zoom in, you can pinch and pull and whatever, but you have no idea the physical reality of that sketch. It's, you know, it's sort of divorced from that. And so the book kind of brings it back to that. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that's that's like the most, because there's so many sketches you follow only on, only on Instagram now. Mm-hmm. And of course, because of the size of your phone, that's what you see. And no matter what you zoom into, 
like just ha- not being able to zoom into it seeing it as it is almost mm-hmm. and especially if you also draw so for me looking at your books and i would just imagine that this is the size that you also probably drew them in and i can go over it with a pen in my mentally or actually with a pen and try to see how these lines would come about and so things that that come to mind therefore are like when you're drawing at a small scale and you're drawing something that's much bigger and of course you've done so much work with canvases that that are actually much bigger there's so much uh, judgment and creative decisions that an artist takes about what to focus on and what gets reduced to insignificance and when we're working in limited time as urban sketchers are we're always making these creative decisions about where to cut corners where we want to spend time is that uh so is that something that you feel like you mentally decide before you start a sketch when you're sitting down somewhere and you've got your scene in front of you that you're sure about do you kind of uh, take stock of how much time or how much focus you're going to give to different parts of what you see yeah absolutely i mean i it, 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 and it's another thing that maybe is a little bit more to now for me um but i i don't like being rushed even if i it's going to be a fast sketch um that and that having that feeling in the corner of your mind that you need to you know you need to be gone soon or whatever always takes away um some of the i don't know something from the sketch so i do think about those things but i like i prefer to be in an open ended situation um and um you know it's sometimes i think about where um where I need to be at a certain point, like, okay, by this point I should have all the pencil drawing done or I should have the, uh, the ink work done so I can work on ink wash or something like that. Like, and I'll look at the clock and like, okay, so I, I want to leave here at two and it's, and now I have an hour left. So now it's time to move on. Um, and, but other times I kind of find myself running out the clock before I've even noticed. Um, it's one of those things where it's, it's enough escapist, kind of a feeling and and a and a meditative feeling that I lose track of time. But I feel like even if you do that enough times, you sort of intuitively end up structuring your page so that you know like so I do a lot of drawings in the exactly opposite circumstance that you're describing. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of drawings of people in public spaces and public transport so I never know when my subject is going to be gone. So I'm always thinking about how little time i might have and that's constantly running in in the back of my head so as a result i feel like i take a lot of creative decisions which have to do with that fact and even when you are taking creative decisions similarly you're you're working over 2 hours or 3 hours you kind of naturally come to a point where you know that if you might if you've done it a few times that you've left had to leave quickly at, after a certain amount of time you get used to like you have a list of things that you know you must have done by now mm-hmm. so that even an incomplete sketch quote unquote incomplete sketch is not quite you know it it still has a sense of completion yes and i think when and i feel it feels so remote to me now but when i did coffee ske- coffee shop sketching and things like that where i could do an interior space and take time but the interior was changing because people are coming and going and or I might be looking a little bit out the window and parked cars will move and another car will replace them etc. Um yeah, I mean I some I've always had a pretty uh carefree approach to things like 
moving on because one thing I've done a, since early on is that I create these hybrids of people because I know if somebody moves, they're likely to be replaced by another person. So like, that's one thing I do. And then I just take my time because I go, okay, if they're going to leave and somebody will probably come along or if not, I'll take the person next to them and kind of, you know, smash them together. Same thing with cars way back when I was doing the Bozeman sketches in Montana, you know, there would be an SUV across the street and it would leave and be replaced by another SUV. And so you'll see the beginning. As it would tend to happen if you live in Montana. Yes, or virtually anywhere now. But, um, but you know, so like the, the front is a Jeep Grand Cherokee and the back is like a, you know, um, a Toyota Highlander or something. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, I kind of enjoy those chimeras uh, that I was making. Um, so I didn't ever, I never got too bent out of shape about people moving on. Sometimes you, you, you put a lot of energy into something and then it leaves before you can really round it into something presentable. And that is, that is a really, you know, that's obnoxious. So when I'm worried that that, that there's the potential for that happening, I definitely do plan that out. I go, okay, I'm tackling you first. Cause I have no idea how long this is going to be here. This is going to be like this. Same thing with shadows. If there's a shadow I particularly love, I'm like, I'm getting this out of the way. And then I might do the other shadows in the sketch like an hour or two later. And they don't even make sense with that shadow, but it doesn't matter. Um, but, you know, so I'll do that. I go, okay, this is important. This person has the potential to leave immediately. And I want to get all of them because they're interesting. Um, you know, and then other times I start drawing a person and they leave and they're never replaced. Or the place empties out. Sometimes I'm alone in a coffee shop. And then I just draw over where they were with the details of the empty space. And that's happened, you know, a couple of times too. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, let's let's do some closing statements now. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure how I want to do this for all the guests I have here. But I, I want to have some kind of a question I ask them all. So I'm going, this is the first time I'm asking somebody. And hopefully this becomes the start of a glorious tradition. Okay. <laughs> the question I have is... Uh, to people who don't, uh, who aren't artists and who don't do any form of urban sketching, what is one good reason you could give them to do so? It's, hmm, that's a good question. It's really, I mean, I have to put myself in the mind of a person who's not an artist, which is the challenge, I think, of answering this question. Because what, the things I love about it, I don't know how well that translates, but. Um, it's meditative, but I suppose if it's not something you enjoy, then it would be hard to find that level in it. Um, and, you know, and it, it's easy to become impatient with something when you're not, you don't have that skill set yet. Um, but it is something about communicating, your, letting your eye communicate sort of directly with your hand, um, which isn't a skill unique to drawing. It's a skill that, you know, I think we all have a relationship with um, and letting the brain sort of out of the picture for a little while um, and just focusing on that relationship, that dynamic between your eye and your hand um, is a really interesting exercise for everybody, whether it becomes a frustrating or challenging thing for you or not, 
um, not it's about that process. You know, if you're not an artist, not about the result. And that process, I think, reaps. I mean, there's there's rewards, whether or not you're interested in making something that you want to show people later, um, because I, there's something about that that is sort of primal to the idea of making in general. Um, and it's very much at sort of the core of our uh, abstract thought about language and, and, um, and learning um, and, and, and having seen, you know, been raising a five-year-old and a two-year-old um, watching them start that way from the, the first, the moment my, my first, my youngest daughter, she reached out and she batted at the um, the little mobile that was above her little rocker seat. When she figured out, when she figured out she had the power to change what she was looking at with her hand, she went and did something, right? And that was, it's this extraordinary kind of a moving thing to think about. Um, and, and, you know, it's like that 2001 scene with the, the apes realizing they can use the, you know, the stick to beat up other apes or whatever it is, or to break the bone, that manipulation, that feeling of manipulation, um, with your eye and your hand communicate like that, whether it's, I mean, we do that all the time, even if it's sort of you like satisfactorily typed something or, you know, you, uh, or you caught something that fell off the counter. Um, you know, like there's something very satisfying and, um, uh, universally, you know, appreciate, appreciable, is that the word, about that for everybody. I think we can all kind of feel that. And, and drawing, I think, is a very pure expression of that feeling, um, if you're thinking of just in terms of process. So if you're not an artist and you're not really worried, and that's the very hard thing to do, is to let go of result, being results-oriented with making art. But the, enjoying that process, um, I think that 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 is a good reason to pick up a pencil or pen and and try it that sounds like a good reason to me it's uh i feel like even if you are an artist so many people don't put in enough time to practicing because they don't they, they're still results oriented so the process of becoming good which involves making those 50 or 100 bad drawings mm -hmm. even if they're not bad per se they're still not up to your standard so to you they're bad and they're all failures in various ways and we we don't we don't extract the joy from the process of having made them and that makes it difficult to keep on going through this process which you know eventually you're going to start uh, finding the diamonds in the, among the coal mm -hmm. but you have to go keep enjoying this process of day by day and that's what i love about watching my kids draw is that my two girls my my oldest is now to the point where she can draw recognizable things and whatever so she is becoming more and more results oriented which is a little you know there there's a lot more happening with her and her skill development there um and she gets more frustrated but my youngest she's two and it's just mark making and it's just this joy of using the mark and make seeing the color the marker or the crayon or whatever um and there is no goal other than that physical experience you know and um it's a really cool thing to to relate to um, and to go back and say, well, I was this for, you know, a healthy portion of my development as a child. 
Um, and then you become so results oriented that you'd rather see no result than a poor one. And then we, and that goes back to everybody no longer being creative. It's like, because the idea of being a failure is so much more horrifying than doing something at all uh, that you don't, you don't even do it, you know? I, I completely agree that that this was a very insightful conversation, Paul, as always with all our <laughs> conversations, I feel like I have learned many things. Oh, uh, no, <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I look forward to hearing from a bunch of different artists. And of course, I love your thoughts and the way um, you um, you interpret like you you've you helped me kind of encapsulate some of my ideas and that's never a bad thing. Mm-hmm.